the reason I like Thomas Hobbes is he's got the first quote, which has curiosity in it, which is mm. curiosity is the lust of the mind. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to The Occupational Philosophers. But before we go any further, what are you going to get out of today's show? We'll see how positive micro habits can drive big change in our lives. We'll look at how important it is to stay curious and be open to changing course as new information comes our way. And most importantly, we'll distill ancient wisdom for our modern times. Hey, John. How are you? Good to see you. And welcome back for another episode of the Occupational Philosophers. Hey, Simon. It's great to be back. Great to see you. Great to hear you. How's your week been? What have you been curious about this week? Well, John, I've been curious about the power of micro experiments and bringing these into our everyday life. Mm, And micro experiments, uh, what would they be and what have you been experimenting with? Well, as you know, we always talk around um, getting rid of this notion of fail fast or experiment quickly, important to the world of the occupational philosopher. So try new things. I've been experimenting with not reading the news in any digital format anyway whatsoever is that including news on social media have you boycotted a blanket ban on all news yeah pretty much pretty much so i've got rid of the news apps i read on my phone i've got site blockers for the news on my work computers and my personal computers as well so i've become news free i'm still listening to it on the radio but i've become i'm not reading to it i'm not reading it at all And here's what I'm noticing. It's really good. It's freed me up. It's become, I had a little bit of a news addiction, I think, John. (laughs) Yeah, I can recognise that. It's a shame there that you're still listening because I was just about to tell you whether you'd heard the news then about John Travolta running for president. Ah, yeah, yeah, I have heard that. (laughs) Um, And look, I'm not anti-journalism. I'm not anti-news. I love reading. I love good storytelling. But what I found was I've become addicted to it. So it was so easy to, especially, let's say, the last 18 months we've had, maybe in politics, global crises and that type of thing, the first thing (laughs) you want to do is wake up. What global crisis? What are you talking about? I've had a boycott on the news as well. It says something's been going on. (laughs) You know you're not allowed to go outside. (laughs) Lockdown what? What are you talking about? It's been thing that you used to what you normally live anyway. You, you love it. But what happened was when I was in the UK Christmas 2019, then we had the big fires in Australia. And so I'd wake up every morning, read the news on my phone. I'd go to bed reading the news on my phone and then came back to Australia, sort of continued the habit. And then let's just say with sort of the political situation in certain countries, so fascinating to read all the time. But I found it being such a massive distraction and I've replaced that time with, I've actually read the local newspaper. So I have read news a little bit, but I've read all about our local rag. I uh, read a book a lot more often. I go to bed reading fiction rather than reading the news and just a whole lot more productive. So I'm going to stick with this and maybe even be a little bit more old fashioned, go back to buying the big, you know, badass newspaper on a Saturday, which is really thick, and then just mull through that over the week so when it's you're not reading it you're not reading it so that's my crow experiment and i'm going to run one each month of the year very good i'll be interested to see the next one that comes along there i, I think what's interesting there as well is on the surface you kind of go oh it's really interesting you've become curious about being incurious but it's not quite that <laughs> oh. you've actually you've actually become it's a different type of curiosity that you're focusing on and there's actually some good studies around this which is obviously there's distracting curiosity clickbait and things that you just go i need to watch that and i need to read that and i need to follow that link and it's curiosity but it doesn't actually it doesn't feed 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 the soul and probably that's a good thing i've wired down stuff that doesn't feed the soul and i've wired up stuff that does feed the soul so yeah that's a lovely way to um Mm, lovely way to say what's got your what's got your curious eye this week john (laughs) <laughs> well, after that, 
nice little profound insight and and very uh, thoughtful way that you're coming at micro experiments. I'm curious about how to build a go kart. Good micro experiment. Yeah, well, I suppose it certainly will be by the time I've finished. <laughs> my practical skills are virtually zero, but my children have suddenly set upon the idea of wanting to build a go-kart, so I've got to get curious as to, well, how are we going to do that? And obviously I'm letting them take the lead about, you know, what's the design and what materials might we use and where are we going to get the materials from and how do we make it safe and, you know, what's the steering and how's it going to, what's the propulsion? So it's a genuine curiosity of an engineering type that i'm actually quite excited by <laughs> but god god help anybody who gets in the way and <laughs> of this go-kart <laughs> this is a go-kart with like an engine oh god no 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 we're, we're, we're talking classic kids cart you know four wheels bit of string and rope with some sort of way of steering it maybe pedals you know my okay. son has actually started to think about Mentos and Coca-Cola, that sort of idea of propulsion and various things. It's going to be sort of low tech, but nonetheless, very, very exciting. We're going to need potential energy as provided by a hill to roll down. Now, in Australia, though, we would call this a billy cart, which is your ah. uh, one which is propelled not via an engine, whereas a go-kart in my understanding, would be something with a big, uh, you know, like a lawnmower engine in the back. Oh, I see. You know, you're, okay. you know, off you go, son, and he flies off into a fence at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sorry about we'll see, your we'll see, Let's see how the billy cart goes, and maybe I'll come back and tell you about the go-kart then. Okay. And I think <laughs> Power by the United of our fridge or something. And I think we'll get... <laughs> For the fridge on the back. And I think we'll put some photos of this on our Instagram account, John, just letting you know to be brought into the world. So if you're listening, you can look. Yeah, I'm going to check out John's experiment. Well, look, our show is called The Occupational Philosophers, John. So I'm thinking this episode would be a great chance to, let's do a little bit of time travel. Let's look at some of our four fathers, would that be the right word? The ancient chinstrokers that have helped fill the world with wise sayings, philosophy, and got us interested in this concept of occupational philosophy. So maybe a little bit of time travel, back looking at our ancient chinstroke forefathers. <laughs> succinctly and articulately put there simon yes we, we're going to go back to the big bearded chin strokers i'm going to start with the ancient period we're going to skip through ancient and then through to medieval and modern and contemporary and yeah and just see what uh, that ancient wisdom can give us for modern times i think so i'm naturally going to start with the greek heavyweights because you know that's the place to start that's where you've got your Socrates and your Aristotle and your Plato, the names that we would all recognize and probably know a lot of their quotes and their some of their ideas that we just instinctively know because they're on motivational posters in offices around the world. Where all, <laughs> so, all good quotes should be, yes. All good quotes on a wall somewhere laminated. So Greek heavyweight, Socrates. So let's start with the real father i think forefather there were some pre-socratic philosophers but uh, we won't go into this well only one of note i think that people will know is pythagoras so you've heard of pythagoras theorem i have yes it, uh, yeah, so yeah. if you've been doing any math for the americans out there maths for anyone that other side of the dateline and he was pre-socratic as i say but then socrates really kicked things off and my dad always used to use a phrase now that I didn't attribute to Socrates at the time, which is, all I know is that I know nothing, which I think goes to the heart of this, that humility to kind of go, actually, I don't know everything and I'm going to find out. So, Socrates. So, just on that, John, what did you think when your dad said, all I know is I know nothing? Were you just thinking, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it used to really, really annoy me. 
<laughs> I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know why he was saying it, and it would <laughs> it would really bother me. But for some reason, it stuck. But uh, yeah, he would say it. But he would say it in a in a wise, sage like way. Well, look, what I got in a wise, sage like way was Simon. If so and so, your friend jumped off a cliff, would you do the same? And I'm not sure what what ancient philosophy that came from, but I'm still continue to use that with my moon unit of a son who does crazy things all the time. <laughs> I'll have a check. I think it could be it could be Plato, but I'm not sure. Your mum your mum could have been tapping into another Greek heavyweight, but yeah. Maybe not as familiar as some of the other ones that we're going to go through today. <laughs> a little bit more indie, so, a little bit more independent. <laughs> it's gone off, riffing off in a different direction. So Socrates, I say, so a couple of interesting facts about Socrates, obviously, is that uh, so he was the forefather. He was curious about how things worked, how life should be lived, walked around Athens in a toga, you know, that classic sort of uh, look that you might imagine, big beard, toga. Lots of people following him, hanging on his every word and exploring this idea of how should we live life and how should society be ordered and all of that. But he became what was known as a gadfly, as we might call in modern day parlance, a pain in the ass, because he kept on asking questions that were very challenging for people. You know, he was sort of trying to upheave the, the status quo and people didn't like that. So he was seen as a very dangerous radical. And so in the end, they tried him and sentenced him to death and he had to drink hemlock and he, in a very philosophical way, rather than resist that or scream and shout or whatever, just said, okay, well, fair enough. If that's the decree of the <laughs> decree of the day and the sentence, I will I will oblige. So he then drank it and fell asleep. Yeah, you, can, you can imagine the um, you're sitting around sort of the ancient bar in the square in the middle of town and everyone goes, oh, God, here he comes again. Going to ask some questions. <laughs> the curious bastard. I'm so sick of this. <laughs> Exactly. It probably started off as something. You're right. It probably started off quite sort of uh, in a quite low level way, and then he sort of just started to get noticed. But yeah, shabby robe, walking around. What's the other thing I like about uh, Socrates? So he enjoyed obviously good conversation and reading, and he didn't like work, travel, or possessions. And uh, he started dancing to lose weight. God knows how that's got into the history books, but <laughs> <laughs> having had Peter on, I just thought it was lovely that. Dance was the way that Socrates decided to lose weight. So there you, you go. You move, you improve. That's been since the beginning <laughs> of time. And it's, it's, it, I'm just thinking about like maybe like, you know, this it, it's building up over time, like the annoyance with oh, so many questions. And then maybe the mayor comes out. All right, if you ask one more question, we are literally going to execute you. <laughs> and you imagine in his mind going, just be quiet, just be quiet. I can't help it. I'm a philosopher. Just be quiet, be quiet. I can't help it. I'm a philosopher. Oh, my God, that's another question. <laughs> that was it. And how are you going to execute me? That's it. Right. <laughs> Take him away. Um, so, so Socrates, then we had Aristotle. So the, the thing about Socrates is they didn't actually capture much written evidence of his philosophical ideas and thoughts or whatever it was aristotle started to capture those a bit more in writing and things so there's a bit more that we have of aristotle and what he uh, crafted but one of the ideas of aristotle which i think is quite good for us is we are what we repeatedly do which was a bit of a distillation of aristotle's ideas but it was this idea of habits it was the idea that it wasn't about maybe sort of putting in place a massive goals or whatever in place for ourselves but just thinking about the habits that we would would start to shape us, would start to take us to where we where we want it to go and who we want it to be. Of course, that's interesting for the stuff we're talking about, about people who want to bring a habit of creativity or play or imagination into their daily lives. So I like that. I like that from Aristotle. And I think that little, that piece around habits is such an, we often think, might think it's, we've got to put this huge habit into our life. It's maybe that tiny little twist. You can bring pretty much anything you want into your life. And I think like uh, often I was speaking with the group yesterday around just putting your phone down when you walk and opening your eyes and looking up. So if you think around a little habit around that sort of bringing some more curiosity 
into your life is just literally look up instead of down. And look, we all do it. Like we all wander around, you know, the only time we make a noise is like, get him away, you bastard. All right. (laughs) 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 Sorry, mate. Sorry. (laughs) So, yeah, a little micro habit or something like that could be just looking up instead of down. And I used to have another quote, which used to make me feel a bit guilty, actually. And it was, how you live each day is how you live your life. And when I'd sit down and achieve nothing all day, <laughs> I'd been on like a sort of a, a course. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm living my life of achieving nothing. <laughs> Quite a curious I've achieved nothing. I'm going to turn into a Netflix watching peanut butter sandwich eating behemoth. <laughs> There's nothing more for me. Uh, interestingly enough, and I don't want to jump to medieval too quick, but St. Augustine was another one, medieval philosopher. He said, if you aspire to great things, begin with little ones. So there is a there is a bit of a theme that plays out across all of these different philosophers that, you know, living the good life and being virtuous or or achieving things of value was very much about perseverance and habit. You know, that is a theme they definitely return to. So it's uh, it's great. I'm really liking thinking and learning about these ancient chin strokers, John. Who else catches your curious eye from the world of ancient philosophy? Well, I could definitely spend all evening day talking about the greek heavyweights but let's move to the roman heavyweights because there's some in there you're going to know and some have been immortalized on film so some people really know but you've got so putting aside you know socrates plato aristotle then you come into the roman counterweights if you will we've got people like seneca who was the kind of father of stoicism this idea of you know being stoic we recognize that as a something we might say today of people who bear up in troubling and adverse circumstances and keep making their way through. So that Stoicism was a philosophy born of Seneca. Now, I would, from what I understand of Stoicism, it might be the modern-day resilience or the ancient resilience. Absolutely, yeah. It is an, uh, yeah, it's absolutely a take on resilience, I think. It's been uh, repackaged. <laughs> it's been rebranded. But, yeah, <laughs> Stoicism. I mean, you know, we used to talk about, my parents' generation as being stoic. And it was all that coming out of the war and that blitz spirit. That was all stoicism. And it was, you're absolutely right, resilience pretty much in a different wrapper. But um, the one you will know, I know you like this one, Marcus Aurelius was again then another Roman philosopher. He was actually a philosopher king and he was portrayed by Richard Harris in Gladiator, which you must have right. seen. I'm sure you've seen that. Oh, of course, of course, for those of you who are under the age of 40. Uh, <laughs> what is this? For those of you who are Just. comfortably into the world of middle-aged joy, you will remember Gladiator, and you'll most likely remember every girl in the world going, Russell Crowe and a toga. That's it. Uh, Russell Crowe uh, walking through fields of wheat. The one I like about Marcus Aurelius, apart from the fact that he was portrayed by Richard Harris, philosopher king, so he was travelling around doing all these great wars and things as part of the Roman Empire, but just chronicled all of his thoughts and things. And he sort of talked a lot about the idea of, you know, the only thing you can control is your is your mind, is your response to things. And it was, you know, you have power over your mind, not outside events. So whatever was going on, it was your response to that and the meaning you made of things. And so, again, it does play into that resilience a little. It was all about how we interpret things that sort of decides our reality a bit. So he was very influential and still, you know, continues to be to this day. So, yeah, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and then we should think about some medieval ones very briefly, I think. Before we go there, there's even though we're talking around these ancient chin-stroking friends, all of these are just so applicable. Not applicable, they're actually what we talk around now. Like you control your mind, you control your own space, be aware of what's in your power of influence to change and leave the other stuff alone. So none of this has changed almost, not since the beginning of time, but since the beginning of uh, sort of, I don't know, what, what would you call that, that beginning of time, like our 
uh, modern culture. Is that where it's like when uh, people start? Yeah, I yeah, I suppose you might say, yeah, it's kind of sort of modern and more contemporary times. But you're absolutely right. It's, you know, the, the ideas are universal and have carried through time. They just get relabeled. They get conveyed in different language. But the ideas behind them, I think, do stay the same. And that's maybe why they carry through and get put on posters in offices. I've got an aphorism, which I've got on my desk, which is I was listening to a maybe more of a modern day philosopher on the radio. And there's an Australian actor, playwright, all round creative called Brendan Cow. And he was listening on one of my radio stations where they bring someone in every week to do their top five. So the top five songs that have influenced them, but they give around a certain theme. And one of his, he's a really, really cool guy, and he's going to be the, he's the next sort of lead in the Avatar films uh, uh, with yeah, James Cameron, okay. who blue, mm-hmm. blue people on the planet, etc. And his aphorism, which I've kept, and he's just a really softly spoken guy, but he's talking about all the things he's done. He said, yeah, just have a go at life. Just rip the shit out of it. So <laughs> I've got that. Imagine, you- imagine, imagine not in that, Ocker Australian way, but he's just talking about all the things he's tried. He said, "I just think you really need to have a go at life and just, you know, rip the shit out of it and all I the things that's... he's tried to take on." But that's my—that's the only quote I've got on my desk. In let's see, in a half A4 size, I'm looking at it now. So that's my I, modern I'm day aphorism. Pretty sure that's Aristotle. I'm sure he said, "Rip the shit out of life." <laughs> <laughs> The next big period, medieval, we got what might be termed the religious men, you know, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. And I said St. Augustine was that, you know, if you aspire to great things, begin with little ones. And then I think you start to go from the religious men who were trying to weave together philosophy and Christianity, religion. They were trying to sort of make them to reconcile with each other. Now, religion and philosophy, especially in this time in the medieval, and I know a little bit about this time because when I lectured at the National Gallery of England and uh, like most of the art from, say, the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s was all funded by the church because the church had all the money. And so Mm. I sort of learned a little bit more around the heavy influence of religion at this time. And, yeah, so there was almost this, fear around God and very different to modern day religion, but this fear and you're going to burn in hell and uh, the church is all powerful and everyone was sort of living under this cloak of sort of being scared of life and they weren't that happy, I've got to say, looking back. (laughs) (laughs) That's because they were looking at paintings by Hieronymus Bosch or someone like that, was it? how, How did this intersection of religion and philosophy start to play out? Well, they were they were trying to make it that obviously philosophy was helping humans make sense of God, I think, but it was still something that was. I suspect they've probably, in hindsight, we'd be looking at it as it certainly was presenting a certain agenda. But yeah, they were still allowing people to think of use philosophy as a means of coming to terms with the idea of God. But then you quickly moved into what might be termed a Renaissance period, where Ooh, you then like started to get. The Renaissance, again, which we know plays out in art. And it's quite interesting that the parallels that you just drew there with art just a moment ago with religious paintings and the like. But the Renaissance men like Erasmus and the uh, Machiavelli, who sort of penned The Prince, which is almost seen as a political handbook for people who wanted to be bastards in politics. <laughs> um, but uh, Erasmus... <laughs> Erasmus, actually, again, another one of those ones who just pops up and you go, oh, I like him. And it's probably because there's more quotes from him that have held to the present day. So he, Erasmus, has things like, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, which, again, is I've heard that quite a lot. I don't know if that's one. Uh, Fortune favours the brave is attributed to Erasmus. And that is one of those things of, you know, go out there, push it out there rip the shit out of it, <laughs> yeah. you'll be okay. It's, we've got a recurring theme here. 
and I, I like that one around. I like the one around the the one eyed man as well, because just that way to just think differently about things as well. Like, and it's sort of maybe um, it's almost like you wish you knew that at school. Like, don't pay out on people that are different to you or something. Or I don't know. Do you, th- do you think that's it, or is? It- I was thinking it's more if everyone was blind than someone who just has the seed of an idea. They might be not have all their faculties, but they've got at least one eye so they can lead the way. So, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of different interpretations on that. But, yeah. <laughs> I like fortune, favours the brave, slash have a go at life. Have a go at life. And prevention is better than the cure. There you go. And there's something for yeah. for today's world with everything we've been going through in the last year. So a bit of Erasmus philosophy there could have served as well. That also lends itself to like modern day social enterprise as well. Like don't try and fix problems like uh, society problems, like actually think in a way where we alleviate them from the start. Like it might be around a living wage for the unemployed or, you know, some of those bigger societal questions as well so rather yeah, than absolutely. the way medicine is changing as well moving from that come in we'll give you a pill to solve that ailment moving to actually let's create a, a lifestyle where you don't have to come in and, and see us so i think that's got some really nice or that's the thing all of these directly linked into our modern the way we live and engage in the world so these guys were interesting cats, John. They were kicking it. And I think, as you rightly say, is, and philosophy allows us to tackle big problems, but it does allow us to, at a very personal level, think about how we want to live our lives or the values we might adopt and live by. So, yeah, absolutely. And common themes emerge of how these philosophers are and some of the themes that they keep coming back to. Now, just I've got one question. I hadn't heard of this book about the modern day how to be a bastard in politics was it or something (laughs) how to be a bastard in politics by machiavelli but that people might recognize it from you know the idea of being machiavellian which is a bit underhand often applied to politicians that they have some agenda something behind the scenes well that emerged from machiavelli you can imagine the word sort of the conversation back in the day saying Mate, you've, you've been pretty nice this week. Go, go, go have a read of that Prince book and just have a think about how you're acting. Oh, sorry, come back. I'm going to be a bastard. <laughs> Off with his head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. We could have had a different description of it. But, yeah, Machiavellian. I mean, most leaders, I think, have a copy. It's a bit like Gideon's Bible for politicians. I think they have a copy in the bedside table. Yeah, you open your door and there it is. Ta-da! Here's how to govern and rule people. Oh, I didn't realise. Hey, Simon, it's time for a thought experiment. And I've had an idea of what we should do for this thought experiment. And it is to consider, given all the chin strokers we talked about and all the wonderful philosophers we've been riffing over, for the last half an hour or so, who you would like to go on holiday with if you had to choose. So it's a would-you-rather thought experiment. And it's a philosopher, what I'm guessing this is where... It is. I'm I'm going to give you two philosophers, and we've talked about both of them today. So would you rather go on holiday, don't care about the destination, maybe that's part of it, but would you rather go on holiday with Socrates, the Greek heavyweight, or Seneca, one of the Roman counterweights. Socrates, obviously, the forefather of philosophy, the gadfly in the ointment, (laughs) (laughs) continually asking questions, walking around in a shabby robe, or Seneca, a kind of sort of uh, who introduced Stoicism to us and the idea that uh, suffering was something we should expect but could easily deal with. We just need to take control of our minds and not worry about external events. So... So a couple of choices for you there. Uh, maybe you want to start with the destination. Ibiza? No. <laughs> Let's go Ibiza. Okay, in Ibiza. It's funny because when you I thought around this the uh, Seneca being the Stoic, and you know, you you grew up maybe watching Disney movies or something, and there'd be those sort of intrepid explorers. 
and then they would always maybe end up in like a pot of boiling water and they're going to be cooked or something. There's all like veggies in there and, and something like that and they're trying to work out how to get out of it. I reckon Seneca just be going, well, what can you do? Just, just going to get boiled, man. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love it. Like, come on, let's, let's, let's be curious about how do we get out of here. Just be like, just, just deal with it, man. Like that's yeah, yeah. Carpe diem. Stay la vie, man. But- so he would not worry about the taxi being late to the airport. He wouldn't freak if you missed the plane. I mean, he'd, you'd just work it out, wouldn't it? He'd be quite relaxing to travel with. Yeah, if you – but then maybe in that near-death situation, you'd want a bit more. He'd just like, yeah, we're just falling off a cliff. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so if it was a life-or-death adventure, then Seneca could be a bit troublesome. But if it was – just the the travails of missing a plane and a taxi, then he might be okay because he'd just keep... He, he'd be a perfect travelling companion because that's really what yeah. you need. So, mm. no, but I'm thinking, you know, Bifa, uh, oh, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. Because Socrates would be like, um, what's in that club? Why aren't we there? Why are we leaving this time? What's happening now? What's there? What's that? What's over that hill? Why are you dancing that way? Why are you dancing that way? Who are those people? You'd be like, come on, man. Just- what's this tune? What's this cocktail made of? <laughs> Why is he playing that? Where did house music start? Where's Carl Cox? Where's Pete Kong? I haven't seen him. So, on the other hand, he did like dancing. So, he imagine did. him. They go, Whoa, you need to get over to space. Socrates is smashing out some moves. So. <laughs> and he did enjoy drinking. You're drinking and dancing, good conversation. So, you know, you get him out on the dance floor and then shove him off in a corner and let him bother someone else, wouldn't you? <laughs> See, <laughs> the bouncer's taking him out. No more questions. <laughs> Where are you taking me? <laughs> Why are you twisting my arm behind my back? <laughs> um, so there you go. So on balance, I'm going to take uh, Socrates. <laughs> I think I keep Seneca for daily life rather than adventures and travel. I, I look I, like he'd be he'd be good companion to just talk to in the day to day minutiae of daily challenges. I think. I think I would take uh, Seneca. I'm just the picture I painted of Socrates. He'd be getting on my nerves just a touch <laughs> because I know my, one of my old uh, flatmates. Bless her, because I imagine she might listen to this. We'd sit down and watch a movie, and like you know, ten seconds in, she go, "Who's that guy?" And like, "Oh, <laughs> he done." Well, who's that guy? And you'd be like, "I don't know." This is the whole point of watching the movie. Like, we're thirty seconds in, like for the first fifty minutes, well, who's him? What's that done? And they go, "Just shut up." There's a plot. Is, you know how the movies work. Just we might work this out to the end. Just be quiet. And like, <laughs> <laughs> actually, yes, it's a good point. So I'll take him on holiday. I'll take him to a nightclub, but I'm not going to the cinema. No, exactly. And I still laugh with her because I see her all the time <laughs> to this day. And her husband, who's a very good mate of mine, is still the same, mate, still the same. So <laughs> Now, I'm looking at the wonderful chin strokers on our list to explore next, and we've got the title of Modern. Now, when we say modern chin stroker, what time frame are we are looking at, John? Well, it's quite a large time frame. I suppose you're now looking sort of, well, 17th, 18th, early 19th century you would have, and then you'd have different ages in that. But, you know, it starts with what were termed the reasonable men. And this was the, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the unreasonable men that we've got now. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine yeah, thinking back, you go, oh, that was a time of reasonable philosophers. Wasn't that better? <laughs> oh, oh, it was, my dear. Back in our day, not like these modern. <laughs> he only charged us th- three shekels for a quote. That was very reasonable. In my time, everything was more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't cover them all, but some of the ones I like, Thomas Hobbes. And the reason I like Thomas Hobbes is he's he's got the first quote, which has curiosity in it, which is Mm. curiosity is the lust of the mind. Um, I love that. Curiosity (laughs) is the lust of the mind. And I mean, that gets a 
blood bubbling a little bit. You go, oh, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't think of it like that. But yeah, so that was definitely saying, look, it's about questioning things. It's about yeah. going deeper, thinking about it and reasoning. Hence the, hence the reasonable men reasoning your way through to knowledge and wisdom and truth. And with a name like Thomas Hobbes, was he British maybe or? Hobbes, I think, is one of our English philosophers. There was a lot of French philosophers that then probably started to emerge as quite a sort of driving force. So then you had people like obviously Descartes, who was famous for, do you know this one? You must, do you know the Descartes one? Cognito I... ergo sum. My silence is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you had it on the tip of your tongue there. Yeah, so he was, I think, therefore I am. Okay. And that yeah. was that, if I have a conscious mind that's thinking, I'm alive. It's, you know, I exist. So, yeah, Rene Descartes was one of the famous ones. And then Locke was another English philosopher. Um, what was he known for? What's his take well, on the world? The, well, he was one of the ones who sort of led the Enlightenment period, which then is where science started to become sort of a major influence in philosophy and on thought. So he was he started to reject some of the religious views about that we had we were born with sin or something like that. Or he went for the I think it's Tabla Rusa or Tabla Rasa, which is empty slate that we are born and then our experiences yeah. form us. And so it was one of those uh, ideas. Now, you, I'm just thinking here, we've got this intersection of science, philosophy, curiosity, and taking back to Renaissance times, and again, only speaking on my sort of experience from sort of studying this through the world of art, but all these great sort of scientists like, say, you know, Leonardo da Vinci comes up, you know, Raphael and Donatello, all of these people, all these great artists. Donatello, he's a ninja turtle, isn't he? Yeah, so just all the Ninja Turtles, they also had a sidekick as um, <laughs> enlightened people. Oh, right. No, I know. <laughs> I remember when I first I worked it out, what? They're not just turtles? You've stolen the turtle's name. <laughs> but these guys, they all operated that intersection of uh, thinking, art, science, philosophy. There wasn't uh, just a... I know, like you today, I'm a financial planner or I am a engineer or I am a chef or whatever that may be. Yes. Um, not just using those examples, but they all operated this sort of intersection of science, technology, philosophy, art, creativity, curiosity, which I think is a really nice piece of the, I think, of the occupational philosopher movement, dare I call it that. But what we're learning about is these, these sort of intersections as well, mm. they didn't do one thing. We understand that they were very, very curious, but they all operated in in different ways. And this combination of a, this mashup of ideas, thoughts, skills—we could say for practical skills as well—sort of made them the the interesting chin strokers that they were. Okay, John, who else from our modern chin strokers maybe catches your eye? So I know the list is quite exhaustive. It is huge. It is huge. And we've been talking about reasonable men, enlightened men, and, and now we're getting into revolutionary men like Karl Marx and whatever. And you might have noticed that the terminology of men is quite repetitive. <laughs> it's not reasonable women, although there was lots of reasonable women. They're not spoken about. It tends to be categorised as men, which I think is something of maybe the times as they were and it's certainly not the case today no and, and very disappointing and i'm glad that that's not the case in our more contemporary world but john who are these curious well chin strokers uh, there's some great ones here so jeremy bentham would be sort of one of the revolutionary men he's was all about the greatest happiness he was known for the greatest happiness principle which is we should act in a way and states and government should act in a way that provides the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people utilitarianism as was known was quite an interesting principle and still talked about to this day very much he also said a lovely one which is stretching his hand up to reach the stars too often man forgets the flowers at his feet and i like that one and what what yeah it's a great quote what what year was, not what year, like sort of 1800s, 1900s? Where, where uh, so we would be now sort of uh, 19th century now. 
19th century. So again, and then you've got people such as Schopenhauer, German philosopher, um, bit of a misery gut Schopenhauer, but, but still has an absolute brilliant one, which I love. I just love it just for what it is, which is talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Oh, these are if, if these aren't Instagram I'm, and office I'm, worthy, I, I don't know what it is. T-shirts, mugs, caps, beanies, the lot. That is, I love that. <laughs> and just, um, I'm just is is from maybe the mer- the first misery guts we've come across because all the <laughs> all these philosophers seem really happy, maybe except. Socrates was that the one we spoke about? The end got got killed. <laughs> yeah, got but he drank hemlock. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, mm, yeah. So he, was pretty, he was pretty sad. But like, why was he? Was his misery part of his philosophy? Well, <laughs> in part, although there is a, there is then quite a sort of how would you say a pattern then of actually sort of more miserableists appearing when they realised maybe some of the what humans are like and they sort of take a slightly dim view so we're moving into the time of the great miserableists <laughs> the miserable men <laughs> rather than the revolutionary the miserable men Renaissance, we have um cubism we have surrealism we have the miserable the miserableists <laughs> the so, and of course, you got Marx in the mix there, obviously, with his work around the Communist Manifesto. And Nietzsche, again, quite sort of uh, pessimistic, maybe, I suppose, more than optimistic, but adopted by the Nazis. So, again, he was famous maybe for the wrong reasons. The, the <laughs> and the lists are kicking on here. Quite, a, <laughs> quite an impact. So. It then gets lighter again. You then get, you then come to, to modern, God. or no, you get to contemporary philosophers. And that starts with people like Bertrand Russell. He's got a lovely one as well, which is do not fear to be eccentric in opinion, for every opinion now accepted was once eccentric. Did I get that this, right? This is so true. This is so true. And you know what first springs to my, my mind? There's, uh, you know, the artist Jackson Pollock, and he used to do that. Yeah. Yeah, so very well known. And look, in the 19th, you know, Australia, let's say we were a very um, young country in sort of Western culture, but one of the most ancient cultures in the world before um, the Brits arrived. But so we were very young and probably, um, you know, back in the 70s, I'd say maybe not as cultured as we are now. And mm-hmm. choosing my words carefully here, but I remember Jackson the Australian government brought Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles at the time for a cost of $4 million. And there was absolute outrage at this artwork being bought in our national gallery and how dare they spend this money and et cetera, et cetera. But it's become one of the most iconic paintings, or is the most iconic painting in that gallery now, flocked by people around the world see. And... I read the other day the value of it is just so through the roof. So, like, you know, 40 million, 80 million, I'm not sure what it is, but a huge amount. It's that, it's that, that idea which was once sort of seemed outrageous can become, I've been thinking a lot about this becomes as well, becomes the norm. And, like, I think in the UK you've banned plastic bags, have you, or it's a lot harder to use them? Absol- um- absolutely, yeah. And, and there was that'll never work. And are you crazy? All of that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Every idea that's presented has that kind of uh, moment, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you'd have you'd have this plastic bag, and you'd have like, and they'd just be thrown away, pain the backside. And I was obviously all for this, being a you know a lover of creating a great world around us. But the outrage, talkback radio, how they you know dare they remove our right to have a bag, etc. Now, plastic bag use has dropped by 90% in Australia and you literally, they're resources, aren't they? Like, <laughs> you used to have like thousands of them at home. Now you've got about 10. You're like, go rinse that out. Don't waste that. Uh, yeah, we need that. And so they're literally these resources. So what was once outrageous is now normal. <laughs> Any other our um, contemporary, and what? How would you describe contemporary? Like 50, 40 years, or yeah. So we're now we're now twentieth century, you know. Uh, and then you get John Maynard Keynes, who was almost a, a economist 
philosopher, almost economics and philosophy. And so I love his one, which is when he was talking about predictions and things, he said, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> and they call him a philosopher for that. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, but what he did say, what he did say again, which then I did like, which is when my information changes, I alter my conclusions. What do you do? Yeah, I like that. I love that one. Yeah, yeah you know, and that does play into if we think about life as we have it, uh, not just our own life, but particularly around teams, organisations. That idea of look, as new information comes to light, how do you respond to that? How do you change direction? How do you change strategy, etc.? And that's a big thing. You've got to remain open. You've got to be curious to new information coming in that may put to one side what you believed before and change opinions, change direction. I hope you change and a nice way to think about that if you think of the visual, you know, think of a horse, you know, wandering down the road. Not that we've seen many of those, but let's say you've got a horse. Take yeah. back maybe, <laughs> maybe one of the earlier times in our philosophy. Horse going down the road. There's a guy in the back in a cart. The horse has blinkers because it keeps it looking in a certain way. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Make sure blinkers are taken off. So when new information comes in, we don't just say, no, I'm tried and tested this way. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always be, which is part of the occupational philosophy principles, I guess. You know, be uh, open. Absolutely. For me, there's, there's something here which really go to it, the idea of just being open to new ideas and, and not taking things for granted or accepting the status quo. Yeah. Definitely. I've got, have you got one more maybe from our contemporary times that would be worth checking out or has got a, a really great quote? And I've got, I've thought of one as we're speaking about this that might be, I'm not sure if he's a philosopher, but I think he fits this bill. Who's that? Who have you got? Seth Godin, who's written ah, about yes. for, um, Purple Cow and All Marketers Are Liars. And his most recent book, which I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, one around creativity and fits right in our sort of spot that we like about bringing your creative ideas, getting them out of your head and into the world because if it's just in your head, it doesn't exist. It needs to be seen into the world. But he writes every day. He writes his blog and he's been doing it for a lot, like a bunch of years, not just like a year. But he's written this maybe 10,000 blogs. Oh, and that, no, that might be wrong. Yeah, sure. no, it's, it's, it's an incredible work output isn't it that he just generates and continuously yeah. offers it out there yeah but he just, he just riffs and i think he when i've listened to him a lot on his podcast he's just open to new ideas and constantly sharing those new ideas as well yeah and i think um a lot of people will be familiar with modern day philosophers a lot of the modern authors that we have that publish a lot of business books for example you know you do get malcolm gladwell and alain de botton and michael sandell and, and matthew side all those people authors really what they're doing is they're putting forward philosophical ideas and trying to prompt people to think in a different way they're doing the job they're putting things out there that have people just go stop actually maybe i'm wrong here or maybe that has me think about something from a totally different perspective and i can change my approach so there's plenty of people sort of putting philosophical thought out there and prompting us to go a different direction to be more creative to be innovative and play and imagine different futures and ideas yeah john 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 we are going to do another thought experiment and this one is called true or not so we both give each other a quote maybe from the world of philosophy or maybe from somewhere else and we need to decide if it's true or not Mostly it is loss which teaches us about the worth of things. I'm going I'm going true. My heart says true. Yeah, it's got a profound ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah. It is true. That is uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, our miserable philosopher that we uh, we touched on earlier. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he's true. Have you got okay. one for me? I do have one for you. All right, let me. <laughs> mine's not. Mine's not quite so deep. But I like. I like that quote as well. But I think. I think it was so good. You had to. Um, you had to. Uh, yeah. How could you not think it was true? So this one. I never really wanted to go to Japan simply because I don't like eating fish 
And I know that's very popular out there in Africa. <laughs> it's so it's so mixed up. It's it's so mixed up. It's got to be true. I, I need to have a guess at I need to have a guess at the source as well. It, it's not your mum again, is it? <laughs> no, 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 it's not. It's uh, it is true. It is true, John, and uh, it's from it could be like a, a modern day uh, philosopher. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a modern day philosopher. But you have to, it's it's an American female singer. <laughs> Let me read it out again. I never really wanted to go to Japan simply because I don't like eating fish. And I know that's very popular out there in Africa. <laughs> who, do, who do you think said that? <laughs> uh, I, I've got a sneak of, I'm going to say, are we allowed to say this? I'm going to say that could be someone like Mariah Carey. No, it's not Mariah Carey. It's not. Or... Um, uh, I, 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 that's it. That was uh, only because I know she she'd said something that got a lot of attention a few years back, and it was something to do with a, a location like Africa or something. But I don't know. Go on, go on. Tell me who it is. Go on. Britney Spears. Uh, okay. Philosopher. Okay. <laughs> now look, uh, I've just did a bit of googling. You've changed. You've changed the tone of this experiment, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, however, here you go then. This this uh, I All reckon right. this will this will play with your play with your grey cells here. Behind every successful man stands a surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> you're you're thinking about your own mother-in-law at the minute, aren't you? Yeah. Or are you, are you considering whether you're successful? <laughs> yeah, both of those. Uh, yeah, both of those. Um, False. I'm going to go false. I just can't imagine. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Like, it sounds like something out of a 1970s comedy set, doesn't it? <laughs> the Betty but Hill it's true. Oh, okay. It's true. Well, in so much as that it's a meant to be, it's uh, 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 supposedly attributed to Voltaire, the okay. French philosopher, uh, who was up there alongside people like, uh, who do we have with Voltaire? Uh, one of the Enlightenment men the enlightened men doesn't sound very enlightened <laughs> well, so yes that was voltaire appropriated i think by different people through the generations and, and there's sure a, as, as maybe, quote that it's been used as maybe yeah. my quote about fish in africa in japan may have been appropriated <laughs> true or false workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your socks I'm going to go for one. It's true. It's going to be one of those um, maybe sort of, you know, like the 40s, 30s, 40s, Industrial Revolution something. No? <laughs> it's the Communist Revolution. It's Karl Marx. But it's false in so much as it was actually workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, you missed sneaky. <laughs> I got the socks in there. So you can you imagine looking at them, each other going, "I don't even need these socks." He's right. What? He's still at the back. Still at the back of the hall. What did he say? Did he say? I think he said. <laughs> oh dear, there you go. Well, Simon, that's been quite a skip through a whole range of different philosophers, chin strokers throughout history. No doubt some of those have stood out for you, but I'm thinking about this being a not so serious business podcast that we might now reflect on what people could learn from this to maybe apply to their lives as personally as individuals or in the workplace, again, either as individuals or as part of a team or maybe as leaders running a business or an organization, maybe how organizations can maybe take on board some of the uh, ancient wisdom and apply it to modern times. But uh, what do you have? What stood out for you? One that's really jumped out, and I think not so much from our ancient times, but from Thomas Hobbes, curiosity is the lust of the mind. 
And yeah. I think this is a universal theory, whether you're a leader, whether you're a uh, sort of part of a team or whether you're an individual and we're all part of teams to a large extent, but just be open and ask why and ask questions and ask better questions for your of your clients, like dig a little bit deeper and find out, you know, what's going on for them. And we've always, uh, I'm sure you know that sort of the five whys principle, which is a come from the, the Toyota manufacturing principle. Just ask, be curious around why things are. And I think just on your own life, if you're curious, you, you do, oh, I think curious people do curious things, if that makes sense. So if you're feeling a little bit bored, just be curious, pick up a new book, try something different, look in a different direction but I think especially, and we always talk around rapid change, the world's always changing, change, 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 the only constant is change. But that's a universal truth. And I think the ability to stay curious about the world around you and how you respond to that is just that universal skill, attribute, human quality that we need to make sure we use a lot. And who doesn't want a little bit more lust of the mind? <laughs> that definitely is a you can imagine that definitely on a mug on your desk <laughs> it was a massive poster behind you just when you're sort of there with the video cam on just catching people's eyes wouldn't it now <laughs> what else you got well well I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to you what's one of yours that have uh jumped out well probably have to start with the one that maybe sowed the seed all those years ago which was the one that my dad said that was then attributed to Socrates, which is all I know is I know nothing, which leaves you in a place of curiosity and also humility, which I think is an interesting, as you would call it, wingman. I think you like calling things wingman. So humility and curiosity go together, I think, because you've got to accept maybe, maybe I don't know the answer, or maybe I don't know enough about this, or maybe I've taken things for granted. So yeah, I think all I know is I know nothing actually plays out in the back of my mind, keeps me curious, has me asking questions, make sure I don't get above my station. And on that, if you're how you think, looking through a leadership lens, because I think there's often this intersection of I'm paid to know everything and that sort of piece here. Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I keep coming back to the idea that we have to be curious to ask the questions and humble enough to listen to the answers. And so I think for leaders, if we can, and maybe there's courage in there as well. There's a little bit of courage there as well to say, be curious, be open and humble to the answers. And if you can, as a leader, attend to both of those, then I think you can, you're going to get insights that can help you lead the business more effectively, engage your team or organization differently. So, yeah, I think curiosity, humility and courage come together I think, yeah i think because that ogre piece comes in around the courage and the humility as well you know that or you're, you're paid to know everything just make something up but i think yeah <laughs> but i think yeah. it's really powerful to be able to say look i don't know the answer but i'm really curious for you to help me find out and all of a sudden that's yeah. empowering as well and for your team for your organization and all of a sudden you create a bunch of curious people in your organization maybe even just looking to that more senior person to have all the answers and a, a bit of a shift of creating that, maybe that culture of curiosity in your organisation. Let's all be curious because we can't all have the answers, but we all come at things from a different angle. And I always think, would you rather, you know, let's say you're in a very, very large organisation, would you rather an organisation of 10,000 problem solvers or just five or six that lead divisions or teams that everyone looks to? And I think you want those curious cats all over your organization absolutely curious cats who can collaborate and solve problems teams need to be curious about the problems they're trying to solve the goals they're trying to reach and about each other as well so that curiosity again people often in teams don't know enough about each other and that would be a recurrent theme i think for me as well is that you see people trying to work together and they they don't really know each other well enough and maybe they need to build trust and awareness and things so again curiosity humility finding out about each other and being and being humble to realize you need to do that all right now that brings me to one of the another quote i like from john maynard Keynes, one of our more contemporary modern 
philosophers. Information changes after my conclusion. Does it for you? I think I've got that right. No. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. But you got all the right words, but not necessarily in the right order. Can you help me out there? John, <laughs> that was a, that's a real pop cultural reference from the 70s. That's Morecambe and Wise, but there we go. When my information changes, I alter my conclusions. What do you do? Okay. <laughs> and I like this because I know we've spoken around that word agile before, which again was the, the roll the eyes, you know, from many people. But that's really what it is, like be open to new information and course correcting. And this is what I talk about when I push sort of micro experiments. They're micro experiments. You try something, as the new information comes to you, you can change. But because you're doing it on a micro level or a fast, rapid, fun level, let's even say that, it's not a big deal. You haven't sort of put, oh, that's a $30 million experiment. We're just going to save the course. You literally, it's a tiny little experiment and you can, it's, it's great fun to try and test things. And I guess maybe using my news piece, if I'd found after a week it wasn't working, I'd look at what would, I needed to change. Whereas I've every week I've it's just got better and better. So it's that little notion of be open to what comes your way and be open to changing as it happens. Let me come back to maybe my last quote and just think about its applications. But Bertrand Russell, we did mention it earlier, actually, but another one was now and then hang a question mark on the things you have long taken for granted. Again, it's lovely. It's simple. And it just says whatever statements you make, whatever beliefs you put out there, just put in a question mark on them to say, okay, does that still hold? Does that belief still hold? Does that assumption still play out? Is this still the case? And just, it's fantastic, isn't it? Just as individuals, we can do that. So we don't get into those polarized positions with other people. Certainly in teams, we can put aside positions and think about common interests. And the same for organizations, just to put question marks. What is it we're trying to do? Who are we? Who do we want to be? And just challenge those question marks and everything. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you join a you join an organisation, we you know every team will have gone through this. Oh, that's just the way it is around here. So it becomes accepted practice, and like nobody knows why. Exactly. It was once so that practice was so important. It's just hung around because it was once so great. It was never challenged, but maybe especially in you know, the last couple of years, like everything's different. So just that and that ability to question something without being like the troublemaker or the you know what I mean? It's just literally, yeah, be curious. Is that still the way it should be? And if it is, great. If not, let's be open to doing a micro experiment and uh, <laughs> and see and see what happens. Now, my last. Just on that note, for Australia, for yourselves, Australians, you're you're good at lifting up the end of a sentence that makes it sounds like it's a question. So you know, you should be very good at this. We sell books. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Skippy, is dad down the well? Oh, no, no, dad is down the well. well that's the statement. You're a flaming galah. <laughs> All right. My apologies. I one I love from Nietzsche, art is the proper task of life. Now, when I'm talking about art, I think just about bringing something into the world that maybe wasn't there, like contributing something into the world that wasn't there before in a positive way. And the art could be your your energy you bring, it could be the what you write, could be what you think, it could be the billy cart that you're making for your for your kids. Uh, yeah, so bring bring something new into the world. And I think it's a nice way to deal with some of those more modern pieces around oh, you know, sort of anxiety and not feeling as good as you can and all those different pieces which have been, you know, very prevalent during, you know, 2020, bring something into the world and contribute Mm. art, whatever that may be, and create a little joy. Hey, John, guess what I've noticed? What's that, Simon? My hair's longer? Yeah, it's a little greyer as well, but as a uh, middle-aged man, that's right in your uh, that's right in your bowling lane, I think is the word. So, but no, what I've noticed, yeah, that's all right, that's all right. What I've noticed is this is a very manly view 
of chin strokers, like all the chin strokers we've delved into, they're men. It is, it is. I'll agree with that. And I think we need to explore the whole pantheon of non-male philosophers, of which there are many throughout history. And so I'd really like to delve in a bit deeper and look at all of those and see that whole diversity of thought. So, you know, there's lots to explore in later shows, I think, and we're definitely going to get there. Some good stuff and to, uh, to talk about. And you listening at home, we've done your favour because we thought, well, let's just add it on to the end of this episode. It would have been 19 hours long. So... <laughs> That's after the edit. Yeah, it's after the edit. So with that in mind, we have the non-male philosophers on their way in the future. Look forward to it. So that's it for this show, Simon. I think in terms of what we want people to do, listening in is obviously subscribe. If you like it, that'd be great to have you come join us again. Tell your friends if you like it and have them come join us too. Maybe even rate us through whoever provides your podcast. And more than one star would be delightful. (laughs) If you... Yeah, if it's one star, don't bother. We're not interested in one stars. We'd like five stars only. And head on over to our website, theoccupationalphilosophers.com, and you can download our Beating Your Ogre Guide, which gives you some great tips to be the creative, curious, philosophical individual that you were designed to be. Until then, stay curious, stay creative, play, imagine, have fun. Now, what was that other quote you were telling me about, John, about the, uh, the hell? Oh, the Sartre one, yeah. Hell is other people. That, that, that appealed to me at the minute in lockdown. I was going to change it to hell is, hell is my family. You're going to be the, the new great miserable. <laughs> <laughs>